If you would like to support the Like Phil podcast, you can like us on iTunes. That's a good thing. Uh, you can share our podcasts with your friends and enemies even. Um, and if you'd like to uh, support us in a more material way, you can become a Patreon supporter of Like Phil. All right. Welcome to the Like Phil podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking with historian Francois Furstenberg about a couple of his books. Uh, but first of all, I welcome Francois. Thank you. Uh, so um, I really, really enjoyed your book, uh, When the United States Spoke French. Can you just talk a little bit about um, what the book is about and why you decided to write it? Sure. Um, so the book follows a group of five uh, emigres who fled France during the French Revolution and went to the United States. Um, and these are all uh, aristocratic emigres. They're, they're, they are, but they're liberal. So they don't follow the real profile of your classic emigres who go to you know Turin or Koblenz or whatever and want to overturn the revolution. On the contrary, um, these guys had been at the forefront of the French Revolution in its early years. And when the revolution became more radical, uh, they were forced to flee. Uh, or be imprisoned or potentially executed. So they left. Some of them went to England first, others. Um, but they all ended up in the United States uh, where they lived in Philadelphia in the capital for a few years uh, in the middle of the 1790s. And um, and for me, uh, what was interesting about these guys is that they, you know, they're well-known figures in, in French history. I mean, these were people who helped to craft the first French constitution, um, who, who led the French Revolution at its early stages. And all of a sudden, they kind of popped up in Philadelphia in the middle of the 1790s. Uh, kinda, <laughs> so weird. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're, you know, sort of hanging out with people that I knew well. I'm, an, I'm a U.S. historian. Um, and so uh, so these are people that I was familiar with to a certain extent from French history, but they just seem kind of like, what are they doing here? They they sort of fell out of French history, you know, and kind of landed in, in, in my neck of the woods um, without any apparent uh, sort of reason. And, um, and here they are, and they're kind of paddling around with, you know, Hamilton and Jefferson and Benjamin Rush and whoever, you know, people who I know pretty well. Um, so, so I got intrigued in them, and you know that was a, a very early stage. I was kind of interested in them, um, and then that was when I was I was in the middle of my dissertation, um, and I was starting to think about ideas for you know what happens when this first uh, research project is over. So, um, so I had that in the back of my head, and then, um, and then uh, when I finished the dissertation, I got a job here um, in Montreal at the University of Montreal. Um, which is a kind of, you know, which is a French-speaking mm -hmm. university. There's only two U.S. historians in the department. Um, and so at that point, I decided, you know, I decided this will be a kind of interesting research project because it'll allow me to connect my own interests in, in U.S. history with broader um, dynamics, uh, with, you know, French history, with Atlantic history, um, and, um, and connect my own interests with those of colleagues in the department and, and with my students. Um, so I thought it was a kind of, it was a good way to, to integrate myself, if you want, in the, into the intellectual life of Montreal. Um, so that was the kind of, you know, personal dimension. And, um, and I think, you know, I would say also that, that there were, you know, there were some genuine sort of intellectual trends that were happening at the time, um, which, uh, which got also sort of furthered my interests. Um, so this is, when I moved to Montreal, it was 2003. And this was um, this was a period when Atlantic history was really flourishing. Um, oh, there was yeah. there was I mean we you know we both went to Hopkins yeah, yeah. Um, and where you know Atlantic history had this long tradition wasn't really my field. I mean um, when I was in graduate school I was really a U.S. historian. I mean my first project is is about nationalism, right? So it's uh -huh. so it was um, it was uh, it was a, a U.S. focused topic. Um, and but you know I of course I I was reading in in, in Atlantic history and I knew about this thing and then. 
um, in at Harvard, they set up this big research center to start, you know, really launch the the, the field of Atlantic history. Um, and so it was a good time to kind of be thinking about uh, U.S. history in broader dimensions, and not just inter um, Atlantic history, but really internationalizing U.S. history. There was um, the OAH was doing this big move to internationalize U.S. history. Um, Bender was working on all the you know he had these edited right. collections, and he later came out with this book on international. Um, it's called. Uh, I forget what the book is called, but um, but it's on it's on you know kind of U.S. history and broader global perspectives. So so there was a, um, there was a whole kind of field of research to anchor the perspective that I was interested in at this point, and so it helped you know it helped set this into context and and make it part of a larger conversation um, in that sense. Yeah, I I like a lot of things about the book, but one of them is that the way that you write. I mean, you write almost like uh, like a, like a novelist, sort of like you can I can really feel sort of what it was like to be there at the time. And one of the things that strikes me, and I guess I knew this sort of theoretically, but the way you write makes me understand it very kind of emotionally, how really when you're in Philadelphia in the 1790s, this is, you know, we have this tendency to imagine, you know, we're seeing the great United States in its infancy. But at the time, nobody had any idea that the United States was going to become what it is. So really, these guys were off like the equivalent of like hanging out in Tahiti or something like in the middle of nowhere on the edges of the, the known world kind of thing and uh, hanging out in, in exile, you know, from, from France and stuff like that. And so you get, and I love that one of the scenes early on in the book where you have, uh, you know, the, the guy going up in the hot air balloon <laughs> and you just describe what he's seeing as he's, flying over Philadelphia. That was absolutely, I mean, that was like Tolstoy. That was amazing. Uh, but also one of the things that's very disturbing about your book, and I wanted to sort of get you to respond to this, because I didn't feel like I had a, a clear answer for it at the end, uh, is that the book is has a kind of heart of darkness feel to it, right? That you have these like the uh, Kurtz type characters who start off very, very idealistic and very kind of inflamed by the enlightenment ideals and then by the end you have you know noai for instance is like bringing over bloodhounds to hunt down slaves and and eat them and destroy them right and is you know bringing taking these dogs out and they're tearing a little kid uh, to pieces you know alive in front of a crowd that's cheering and how does somebody go because this seems to me to be a theme in all of in, in all of your writing, actually. I mean, all the way back to that article you wrote in the Journal of American History years ago, where you talked about uh, how is it that these <clears throat> slaveholders in Virginia could toast the Haitian Revolution? Like, how how does that make any sense whatsoever? And you explain how it actually does make sense. Uh, so maybe if you could explain the same sort of thing when it comes to these characters, how do they go from being in people who bring about the French Revolution to people who are uh, bringing bloodhounds to Saint-Domingue? Like, um, <laughs> I wish I had a good explanation for that. Um, I, okay, so, well, first of all, thank you for all the kind words about, about the book. That's kind of you to say. Um, so, you know, when it comes to this particular question, um, you know, the heart of darkness is probably a, a, a good sort of analogy. Um, you know, I think one of the things that a lot of people have been sort of puzzling over for several generations now, I would say, um, is the 
in the context of U.S. history, it's it's <clears throat> what you were referring to earlier. That is to say, the the sort of apparent contradiction between slavery and freedom, right? I mean, the the revolutionary movement is um, in in the United States is this great expression of of uh, you know sort of these declarations of of rights, of innate liberties, um, equality, all these kinds of grand principles, and yet they take place in the context of a slave society. Um, and uh, and over the early years of the of the republic's life, uh, as the country becomes more democratic, which it does for white people, for white men, um, it becomes the most indeed radical democracy in the Western world at that point. So that people like Tocqueville are coming over in the 1830s to find out what's happening here and, and see what they think is going to be the future. And at the same time, this is um, this is a, a, a massively expanding slave republic so that you have about 4 million slaves by the time of the Civil War. So how do these things go hand in hand? Um, and that's been uh, of interest to historians for a long time. Uh, in, a, in an even broader dimension, I guess, a broader scale, uh, one can ask the similar questions about the Enlightenment itself. Um, that is to say, how does... Um, you know, if, if one wants to use, I mean, you talked with David Bell, the other, so, you know, how does, uh, do we even want to use that term in the singular, but let's, let's use it for now. Um, but how, how does this intellectual movement or these sets of intellectual movements, however one wants to formulate it, um, which are, you know, in, in fact, deep, uh, reflections on and, and pronouncements about the innate liberty and equality of humanity. How, how does this, um, how does this movement, relate to the fact that at the very same time that Europeans are discussing these ideas and moving in these directions, um, and in a sense, the American Revolution build, uh, builds on, becomes um, the French Revolution, and which, which takes those same principles to a much greater extreme um, and much more universalistic ways. And, and, and yet, that entire society, all of Europe is basically, um, is basically predicated on the, an economy that, that, that turns through um, through the institution of, of Atlantic slavery. So the, so in the Caribbean, in South America, and in North America, um, all of the kind of the, the, the crops that are... That are um, the big cash crops, the big money makers. Yeah, that are the, the engines of the European economy. I mean, we're talking about sugar, coffee, indigo, cotton, tobacco. I mean, all these commodities, these are all produced by slave labor. Um, and they all require the, the, the grueling um, oppression of Africans who are who are brought over um, and put into slavery across generations, and so here's the here's the sort of economic foundations of the Enlightenment, um, and and how do those things relate to each other? So this is another related to the one I was talking about earlier, but uh, one of the major questions of kind of Western history, right? I mean, yeah. how do we understand this? Um, and I think you know a lot well, of I, I actually I assigned I've assigned your that particular article in the Journal of American History. I've assigned that to a couple of classes, and I had. One very brilliant young student, uh, Haitian Haitian girl, she's 17 years old, and she pointed out something really interesting. She said, wasn't one of the central ideas of the Enlightenment the idea that right is is based on reason and that there's you know, natural law and things like that? And she said, but actually the justification, if what Furstenberg is saying is, is, is right, the justification that they're using for why they deserve their freedom and other people don't is because they're willing to fight for it. And if you're not willing to fight for your freedom, you deserve your slavery, right? Which she said, isn't that just a reverting back to a kind of medieval might is right attitude, right? That it's just force is what decides what's what's correct or what's not. I mean, hey, would you, what do you think about that? Like that's um, I mean, I think she read the article and understood it pretty well. I mean, <laughs> okay. I, I, I would say that um, I'm not sure that, I, I trace it back to even older uh, lineages 
um, going back to ancient to the ancient world, um, in which citizenship is based on a kind of martial virtue. So, and you know, this is still the case today. We still have these ideas, right? I mean, there's there was a recent big hubbub, and I mean, I think it made it to the front pages of the New York Times. I think about how this former um, veteran who'd fought in the U.S. Army was had been deported. Um, so there's still this idea, and there's a kind of fast track to citizenship if you serve in the in in militia in the army. Um, so there's this very old idea, which which as I say goes back to ancient Greece and ancient Rome, uh, that that an important bedrock of citizenship is your ability to serve um, to to fight um, to 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 serve in the armies. I mean that's is what what creates uh, the virtue as they as they understood it. Or it's one of the pillars of, of of this ancient idea of virtue. So and, and I think that continues on into the modern period and into the into our contemporary period, as I'm saying where people do kind of understand that somehow military service is tied to citizenship and that you need to, to somehow perform um, perform this kind of uh, service. And, and it's one of the it's one of the um, barriers to uh, to a more universalistic understanding of citizenship. Right. Um, so that, you know, uh, this is part of the reason that it became such an issue for women to fight and to serve in and, and in combat um, forces. I mean, and this was a longstanding issue, but you know, somehow this this is a, a demonstration of citizenship. Now, the question is how how far do we want to take that? Do, does that become a requirement of citizenship? Do we need military service to be? Well, you know, we've decided that question in recent generations. Obviously, that you know, this is not a requirement of citizenship, um, but it nevertheless can be one way in which um, in which you can distinguish between different levels of citizenship, let's say, or levels of freedom. Um, so yeah, so that's a that's a very old idea that was one way that they sort of rationalized it yeah i i also we were dis- discussing a couple of weeks ago on the podcast neil ferguson's uh, new book the the square and the tower which it it's very funny because i read his book and then right after his book i read uh, i had reread your book right uh, when the united states spoke french and they they worked very very nicely together i mean because he talks a lot about the the role of networks and hierarchies throughout history and in kind of making movements. And he talks about the American Revolution, the French Revolution, uh, many other things, and the importance of these uh, these rich kind of networks in the Atlantic world to making various things happen. He actually cites, uh, you're in the footnotes of his book at one point, but um, <clears throat> to what extent do you think the networks that were present at the time uh, were the kind of the motive force behind things like the Haitian Revolution, the French Revolution, the American Revolution, like to what extent are they kind of cross uh, pollinating each other or to what extent are they just kind of coming out of the culture that's there without much contact with the outside world? Um, well, I think I think there's clearly a lot of interrelationship between these these movements. I mean, there's no doubt. Now, what metaphor we want to use to talk about that um, is is a question, you know, it's an interesting <laughs> question. And that and, and that language changes over time. I mean, the network, you know, we're, we're in the mode of the network, right? This is mm-hmm. the age of the social network. Um, this has become one of the master metaphors for understanding our, our world today. And we, we use that now to understand the past as well. So we see social networks everywhere. Um, I suspect, you know, if I had to predict that in, you know, 20 or 30 years, if anyone ever picks up my book off some dusty <laughs> shelf and looks at it, it'll, it'll, um, it'll seem really dated, right? Somebody will be able to say, wow, that was really a product of the, the early 21st century, you know, this kind of <laughs> Facebook age, um, you know, with all my, like, sort of my chart of networks. I mean, I really, I really uh, dove into it. Um, I think without thinking too much about how, um, you know, about how that metaphor works. I mean, it seemed, when I first started thinking about it, it seemed sort of fresh, you know, people were talking about, you know, networks here, networks there. Now everybody's talking about it. Um, and it doesn't seem nearly as, as fresh. Um, 
but it has become one of the ways of understanding. You know, there's other metaphors for thinking about this. Um, one of them is um, is contagion. You know, I mean, this is a way that people talked about it back in the, in in the 18th century, the kind of contagion of liberty. Um, so that you have, you know, uh, I mean, they didn't have a, an idea of, of germ theory in a sense, right? But you but you can think about it that way. Uh, you know, um, there's a there's a kind of virus that that sort of like infects one one body politic and then moves across um, and kind of spreads in that way. Uh, there's there's the chain of revolutions. I mean, that's a very powerful uh, metaphor as well. Um, so that one link leads to another, leads to another, and you know this has a more kind of linear uh, sense in it, uh, linear kind of implications, right? So that mm-hmm. so that you you need um, the American Revolution to understand the French Revolution, and you need the French Revolution to understand the Haitian Revolution, um, and so there are you know there are all kinds of of different you know there was uh, there was uh, there was this idea of one great revolution, um, which has multiple movements um, within it. So you know there are lots of ways of kind of thinking about these things, but I think um, it would be hard to argue that they're not connected in some way. Um, I think that would be a hard claim to make. There, obviously, each movement is very different and has its own kind of indigenous um, causes, and 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 which shapes the context, which shapes the, the you know the, the the evolution of each of these movements. But um, but they're all deeply interconnected with uh, with one another. Yeah, there's. Um, I don't know if you've checked out that new book by Charles Mann. He's well, he's got a couple of them, but um, not the Wizard and the Prophet. The one just before that, uh, it was. 1493 i think it was but um in there he has this very wacky theory that i've never heard before but i was wondering what you thought of it he he says that if you look at the mason dixon line roughly uh, before before europeans ever got to the americas what you find is that um north of the mason dixon line the native peoples of the northeast of north america did not have slavery they had, and in fact, they had um, sort of federations and they had systems that look roughly like what we would think of as being democ- democracy, you know, something something like democracy. And below the Mason-Dixon line, long before Europeans showed up, the Native people there had slavery and they had very hierarchical systems. And he, anyway, he goes like sort of all over the Americas and he makes this, advances this very strong thesis that a lot of the uh, things that that emerged in the European settlements of especially North America, but also South America and Central America, were actually there already. That those some of those divisions, and he uh, says that this probably has something to do with climate and soil and what kind of things you can grow there, what kinds of uh, how thickly you can be settled, right? How you're going to? It, it's very <laughs> crazy, crazy idea. But the idea that um, the what you saw with North and South and emerging where some of these some of these kind of colonies no longer have slave or have it very little. Uh, what do you, what do you think about that? I mean, that's um, all right. So I haven't read the book. Um, okay, it sounds super interesting. I mean, I think that there's um, there's little doubt that that sort of environment, um, uh, you know, landscape, agriculture, all these things shape uh, human societies in in important ways. Um, I'm gonna express some skepticism from from your description. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I, I would. Um, I, I would find it surprising, from given what I know, which isn't a whole lot. But I would find it surprising if slavery didn't exist in, among Amerindian societies. You know, uh, before uh, it north of what's now the Mason-Dixon line. Um, I don't think that's right, but maybe it is. Um, 
And, you know, it's it all sounds a little too deterministic for my taste. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, you know, historians hate determinism, so <laughs> we're, we're kind of like professionally trained to, to avoid anything that, that kind of smacks of it. But, uh, but um, you know, I mean, I don't think that there's quite such a linear relationship between between agriculture and, and the kinds of societies, you know, so that tobacco somehow is an inherently slave crop. I mean, there are, there are reasons why when you're when Virginians are producing tobacco, sl- uh, slavery is more uh, profitable than, you know, it is in production of wheat, for instance. But but um, but I, I would find that, you know, a, a, a different claim. I mean, you know, when when Native Americans are growing tobacco, they're not they're not doing it um, for the same reasons that that Europeans are. I mean, that Virginians are so. Um, and then, you know, you going down, there is clearly something correct about saying that there are certain areas that can support greater population density. So that would create different kinds of societies. Yes, that's true. Is that naturally inclined towards slave societies? I don't know. I mean, I find it <laughs> so, you know, and, and even if you, I mean, I mean, if, if you go to sort of parts of the parts of history that I know a little better, I mean, you could, you could sort of reverse the claim and say, we were pretty close to the United States was pretty close to abolishing slavery in Virginia and Maryland in the 1820s and 30s. I mean, that could have happened, you know, in which case we wouldn't see the Mason-Dixon line. I mean, that was pretty yeah. close to happening. It was right on the edge, you know, yeah. and that, in which case, um, you know, for us, the Mason-Dixon line would have a very, uh, wouldn't be very meaningful. We would have found some other line between, let's say, North Carolina or maybe even a little further south. That would, And then that would be the line, you know, and then, you know, maybe man would be writing about how that's really the, the, <laughs> the region that distinguishes. So, so um, yeah, so I'm just going to be a little Yeah, it's kept going. That actually folds in very nicely with another question I wanted to ask you. I remember Ron Walters in seminars, he would always, one of the things he would ask us to do is after we had done a bunch of research on a particular issue, he would say, ask us the what if question. He said, you, you know enough about this topic now that you should be able to identify a couple of what if scenarios, right? So wondering, in your research into that that whole period, can you imagine a couple of sort of what ifs, like things that could have gone differently, you know, Lenin not making it to the Finland station type moments? Like, can you imagine some moments where if that had gone differently it would have vastly changed the course of the history of you know one of these various trajectories yes um okay many and okay. you know it is it's one <laughs> well, of the it. <laughs> it's one of the fun um you know this is Ron, extent, if you're listening you'll be happy with this yeah, so. <laughs> the it's one of the great um well so i fully endorse ron's uh you know um <laughs> principle here that it's important to kind of imagine and it's you know it's certainly fun this is usually thing that historians do you know sort of like at the like late night at a conference after a couple of drinks right? yeah start playing this quite stuff a out. few drinks this yeah. can turn into a total parlor game right yeah. but it's but it's an important intellectual oh, exercise yeah, very much it's an important intellectual exercise because um because it does reinforce the contingency of these things you know it's easy to um it's easy to look back on the past and say it because it happened this way it had to happen this way mm-hmm. and it's true that that much of our job is to kind of explain why it happened this way right which is easy to it's easy to, to turn into this is the only way it, it, it could have happened. But but um, in fact, it's not the only way that it could have happened. Many, you know, there's so many sort of forks in the road where, you know, and each one had to lead to the to the place that we ended up. And, you know, and part of our job is to understand those forks, you know, to see them in, in, in that way. Um, so so the one that jumps immediately to mind, which I play out a little bit in the book, um, is so you know we will we'll, we'll, you talk to you a little bit about the Haitian Revolution and we'll talk more about it I'm mm-hmm. sure um, but there's a moment so you know over the course of the 1790s um, the former slaves in Haiti fight their way they 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 um, they 
uh, fight against the French Republic. They fight against the um, they fight against the British Empire. They fight against the Spanish Empire. The three great powers of the of the of the age, um, and they succeed in gaining their autonomy. Now, they do this. Um, they do this once Toussaint sort of returns and and he allies with uh, with the French government after 1794 when the when the French abolish slavery in their colonies largely as a response to what's going on in in Saint Domingue. Um, the the Haitian Revolution is taking place in the name of the French Republic. So um, when Napoleon comes to power late in the 1790s, uh, he uh, he you know he was quite unhappy uh, with the this state of affairs. And for whatever reason, and there's lots of speculation about this, um, he decided that he needed to um, to re to to sort of return to the status quo ante in Saint Domingue to put all the freed slaves back into slavery to. Uh, restart the the um, the sugar economy in that way. Although Toussaint had been working to restart the sugar economy outside of uh, formal slavery, so um, so Napoleon sent a vast army um, into uh, into Saint Domingue to try to re re enslave the, the the formerly enslaved people of of Saint Domingue. He sent them in 1802. This is the Leclerc expedition that I talk about, and um, and it was a, a catastrophic failure for Napoleon. Oh, One yeah. of, and there's you know there's this great line that I spent many many hours trying to find because i had i had seen it referenced in a few places but i couldn't i couldn't dig it up myself uh where napoleon when he's in exile in saint helena later is saying he has you know a set of published memoirs that are usually spoken to some of his generals um and he says that that was one of the greatest mistakes of his life which is a great um I mean that's a, that's a great line, right? Like here's From a, guy, a guy who's made some pretty epic. Mistakes. He made some pretty yeah. epic mistakes, right? You would think yeah. that I don't know the invasion of Russia, for instance, might be up there. Whoops. Yeah. Um, but but here it is, right? Right on par with that. So so that's pretty interesting. So what's what's an alternative scenario to what Napoleon did? Well, an alternative scenario is that he could have recognized Toussaint as the de facto leader of Saint Domingue within the broader French Empire as a as a kind of ally. And Toussaint, in fact, wasn't repudiating his alliance to France. He wasn't saying we are we are not French; we're completely independent. No, he was saying that we want to sort of run our um, our our country, you know, our island in the in in our own way. So he wanted more autonomy, which is what he had. Um, and you know, there is a model for this in the seventeen earlier in the seventeen nineties. The French Republic had been allying with with freed slaves in in Guadeloupe um, and of course in Saint Domingue itself, um, and gaining great victories over the over the French over the British and the Spanish. So. So Napoleon could have done that. He could have allied with um, with Toussaint, um, and he could have just uh, uh, understood that as part of the French Empire. Um, and what you know, Napoleon's um, one of his major objectives in um, in holding on to Saint Domingue uh, was to you know, well, not his objective, but one of the subordinate objectives of uh, of having Saint Domingue was to expand, re-expand the French Empire into North America. So, you know, part of the same mission that was going to Saint-Domingue in order to re-enslave the slaves was going to go back, uh, the former slaves, was to go go on through the Gulf of Mexico into Louisiana and um, make Louisiana French. They had just secured a French Louisiana, um, re- the retrocession of Louisiana from the Spanish. That was all part of Napoleon's master plan. So if instead of trying to fight Toussaint and re-enslave the now freed people of Saint-Domingue, what if he'd allied with Toussaint? Put together a um, a biracial force uh, that would have gone on as as they had been doing in the Caribbean and the shipping in the 1790s. Um, what if they had gone on to Louisiana to hold uh, Louisiana with with this force? Um, there would have been tens of thousands of French troops who hadn't died in Saint Domingue, along with uh, with Toussaint's forces who had who had been victorious over the British and the Spanish. Um, and uh, this is a this would have been a pretty powerful um, 
army to hold. We could New all Orleans. be speaking French in North America. If that we could. Happened. We could. No, I mean, think about it. The British, right? They, the Americans, rise up. They have a revolution against the British, and pretty soon afterwards, they kiss and make up, and they have you know regular relations with each other, and together they manage to expand the English-speaking world quite dramatically, right, all over the place. Imagine if instead of doing that, they kept fighting against the Americans and sort of weakening each other constantly in the process, meanwhile strengthening the hand of uh, their opponents. They could very easily have weakened each other so much that uh, perhaps the French Empire would be the French-speaking world would be in the same situation. Yeah, I mean, Louisiana was still, um, is you now. know, large parts of the Mississippi Valley uh, had had French-speaking populations that were still um, that were still, you know, Métis and and even former French soldiers who were who were in these trading posts across the Mississippi Valley. A lot of Native American uh, nations in that region held on to their former alliance with with France. Um, and now, if you imagine an army, a French army moving into that region, that would have been very difficult to dislodge. And you can imagine pieces of the uh, Trans-Appalachian West, like Tennessee or Kentucky, detaching from the United States and, and al allying with this with this um, French Republic uh, in the Southwest. And then, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine at that point how the United States would have expanded into the Southwest, into Mississippi, Alabama, into this entire Black Belt. So, you know, I mean, that's the site that will become the future slave republic of the United States, slave empire of the United States. So, so um, and that might never have happened, you know, so how mm -hmm. would the United, you know, so you can play this out. I mean, it's really, it's, it would have, it would have um, terribly weakened the institution of slavery in the United States yeah. if it hadn't been able to expand. Um, and it's hard to imagine slavery continuing and growing in the, in the Chesapeake region without, um, without that outlet in the, uh, in, in the Deep South. Slavery might have withered away in the United mm -hmm. States, maybe no civil war, you know. Now, yeah. of course, you know, we're really in the realm of, yeah. of fantasy. I mean, most likely, I think the most immediate outcome of had Napoleon done that with Toussaint um, would have been a, an alliance between the United States and Great Britain. You know, Jefferson would have tossed out his former French sympathies. Um, he said this quite clearly. I mean, who knows how much he was posturing diplomatically, but but I, I suspect there would have been a um, you know kind of joint mission with the British and the Americans to descend the Mississippi and try to dislodge the French. I mean, who knows what would have happened? So maybe it wouldn't have succeeded. But but it's it's fascinating to kind of think about, and also mm -hmm. you know just to think about the 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 ways in which um, even this expansion of slavery in the United States, which is one of the great stories of, of American history, I mean, it's one of the central themes of of the 19th century in the United States, um, that even that might not have taken place if things had played out a little differently um, in in the late 1790s and early 1800s. So, I mean, the the I can imagine the most obvious explanation for why they didn't take that route, but uh, it, I mean, it seems that it's obviously it's it's probably racism, right? That they wouldn't want to sort of ally themselves with uh, the Haitians. But um, do you think that's actually the reason or is there some other? I think, yeah. I mean, I think racism was a huge uh, factor in this. I think Napoleon, um, I mean, you know, it's, it's we could delve or not into his psychology. I mean, it's hard to know, of course, but Napoleon seems to have really detested the idea of a, of a Toussaint, you know, he was sort of the black Napoleon people referred to him. So mm -hmm. he seems to have uh, resented that, detested that, detested the very idea that that um, that black people could make these claims on freedom. Um, his his wife was from the former, you know, plantation uh, owning um, class of French people. So, you know, she may have had an influence. There's speculation about that. Um, and, you know, and then there are economic uh, motivations as well. I mean, there's a people, the, the France was was very reliant on its Caribbean commodities, its Caribbean islands, the Sugar Islands. I mean, if we go back in time a little bit, 
to the end of the Seven Years' War, we can recall that that there was negotiations at the end of the Seven Years' War uh, between Britain and France, whether Britain was going to return Canada, um, all of Canada, back to France or Guadeloupe. And uh, France ended up going with Guadeloupe. It was that lucrative, right? One mm. small island was was more economically powerful than the entire. I, I that just I've seen the numbers and they just blow my mind. Like it was just an economic powerhouse. For, powerhouse, and yeah. so so France, you know, uh, especially when it's fighting these wars with um, with Great Britain and with much of Europe. I mean, it needed it needed that economic motor. So so they wanted to get the sugar economy back on track and running. And it's um, as they understood it, uh, and there's good reason for them to have understood it that way. Um, getting the, getting the sugar economy running uh, is is completely incompatible with uh, abolition. So so, um, so that was one another major reason for wanting to maintain slavery in the Caribbean uh, as the French side. But racism is clearly is clearly there. <laughs> I mean, there's just, there, you know, it's, it's very hard for people. And it continues to be very hard throughout the 19th century um, and long into the 20th century, in fact. I mean, this is part of the reason that the last generation or two has seen a lot of interest in the Haitian Revolution is because it's very hard for whites to imagine black people in general and former slaves uh, in particular as um, as human actors capable of acting politically in the same way that white people do you know so people have very little uh, difficulty understanding the American Revolution as a movement uh, for human freedom or something like that as a, as a political act they have very little difficulty understanding the French Revolution in that in those ways although there's there's you know contest over that I mean in terms of the ways we understand the Jacobins in the French Revolution and the, and the demonization of the Jacobins. But um, with the Haitian Revolution, it's very hard for people to even understand that as a revolution. Um, they, it's hard for people to understand that as a, for white people to understand that as a political movement, as a, as a, as a universal movement for freedom. So, so it's, it's just very hard for white people mm-hmm. to get their heads around um, in, you know, in Napoleon's time, never mind our own, around this idea that, um, that this was a, a movement uh, on par with, and in many ways, um, even greater than the French or the American Revolution. Oh, I remember when I was an undergrad going to Carolyn Fick's classes, and she, you know, she's written a lot on the Haitian Revolution, and the the responses people would say in class were, I mean, absolutely, they were they were creepy. <laughs> but uh, another what if scenario that I wanted to ask you about, because I know you've written a great deal about Washington, and another one of your lovely books, in the name of the Father, and you've written about anyway, but. Right now, in the age of Trump, we're sort of talking a lot about uh, about tyranny and about limits on executive power and on having, you know, all these things kind of trace back to uh, the founding of the American Revolution. A lot of people talk about how if you did not have a George Washington when you did and the kind of person, you know, all the, the mythology laying down the sword in front of Congress and uh, giving giving up and deciding not to be, take over and right so what do you think the united states might another one of these what if scenarios what do you think the united states would have become or what would have become of the american revolution if you didn't have a washington would it have just gone the way of the french revolution you know have a kind of a strong man taking over i mean what's your what's your guess um well i like the early framing of that because um I think it's, um, I never thought about it this way, but why not? I think it's fair to blame George Washington for Donald Trump. <laughs> I think, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, most, you know, it's, it's the, in many ways, the unlikeliest scenario of all is the one that took place, right? That, that the American Revolution would lead to some kind of uh, stable republic slash democracy. I mean, I think that was the, 
um, especially on the scale in which it in which it happened uh, on this sort of almost continent wide scale. That was almost uh, unimaginable at the time. And even those who were putting it into place thought that this was going to be a very difficult task to accomplish. Um, so so yes, I mean, it was it was very unlikely. There's all kinds of ways of understanding that playing itself out differently. The most the most common model that people had in their minds at that point was of a kind of Caesar, right, that the the Republic um, the Republic fights its enemies, but then uh, and 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 emerges victorious, but then falls into a, a, some kind of despotism because that seemed to be the ways that republics um, evolved. There was a kind of historical, you know, circular historical understanding that that you know you have a you have a republic which which um, which is very um, fraught and contingent and is always is always fighting to maintain itself, and eventually it falls into despotism, and then eventually the into some kind of wheel yeah. exactly so, yeah. Or maybe anarchy, which results in the rise of a despot, you know, yeah. and, then, and then the the, the uh, destruction of liberties. So, so this was the kind of um, almost the inevitable historical scenario, and the challenge was how to f- how to freeze it in this moment of republican virtue, in this moment of republican uh, time, and um, and one of the major fears. I mean, this is one of the major reasons that people are worried about centralized executive power. Um, they the way they understood it, King George had been seeking to expand his um, his powers at the expense of of uh, Republican liberties, parliamentary rights, um, and rights of, so- of self-government, local self-government. Um, and the kind of central power in London had been trying to crush freedom in the colonies. Um, so so this was a, 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 a recurrent danger as they understood it, and they worried about the new executive power that might rise. And so so for that reason, it was such a incredibly symbolic, um, symbolic act when Washington gave up his commission at the end of the um, at the end of the the American Revolution, and you know, sort of metaphorically, beat his sword into a plowshare. I mean, this was a, a this was um, an, an incredible moment. And you know, there's a story, maybe apocryphal, I don't know, but but I've quoted it. I mean, as a possibly apocryphal story, <laughs> but there's a story that that when um, when King George first heard the news that Washington had resigned his commission at the end of the um, at the end of the Revolution, he said, if he if he does that, he'll be the greatest person in the world, or something like that. Um, <laughs> And you know it's it's a great line, right? It's a great story because there's almost a, a sense of jealousy. I mean, here here he is, the king who still exerted great power back in the 18th century in terms of in terms of governance. Um, here's the king of the most powerful empire in the world who is expressing some level of jealousy against against this upstart revolutionary. Um, and Washington kind of figured it out that that it's it's really by giving up power that you can achieve the greatest fame and in a sense power well, different kind of deified. power right i mean he was yeah. like just turned into this like he's the republican legend. god absolutely yeah. and he's used as this incredibly powerful symbol to to you know so and and he understood this, the the power of that symbolism and he he understood and it's it's a really an astonishing kind of lesson i mean when you look when you look back over the centuries since then there are very few people who've done that i mean the temptation for you know people who are in power is to hang on to power um, and to and to you know I mean you just see it we've seen it very recently with constitutions that get you know that get kind of amended so that people stay in power uh, on some quasi permanent way. This is still happening today, right? So never mind two hundred and however many years, forty years ago, um, this was this was a, a, a very impressive thing to to have understood for Washington. And so I mean what you're referring to, right, is that is that um, it's because people trust in his ability to give up power um, because he did that at the end of the revolution. Um, People, you know, one of the more expected outcomes of the revolution might have been that Washington sees this Congress, which is not paying um, salaries, which is really dysfunctional um, and which is uh, has outstanding debts and um, all kinds of there's all kinds of grievances, legitimate grievances against Congress. And he could have with uh, with probable ease, you know, sort of rallied the 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 
the army to march on Philadelphia and to proclaim himself some kind of king or some kind of authority, uh, emperor, whatever, and and um, um, and and reigned for the for the rest of his life. I mean that that was what that was certainly understood as a, as the most likely and 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 uh, dangerous scenario for the for the American Republic. So Washington had specifically refused to do that by giving up power at the end of the revolution, and it was this incredible act that he resigned his commission as commander-in-chief. Um, and so that was why people trusted him. That was why they venerated him after the revolution. And when he returned to the Constitutional Convention, which he did with great hesitation um, and presided over it, you know, there's this kind of line by someone, I forget who, maybe Governor Moore, I mean, someone in the Constitutional Convention that whenever they uh, began discussing the executive in the Constitution and, and the grant of really quite uh, extensive powers to the executive and under the Constitution, they would look up at Washington and imagine him as the president, and that was part of the reason they were willing to do that. So, um, so I think you know, and I think there's a there's a great deal of of reason to think that that's right. I mean, that it was the trust that people had in Washington that made this new executive, um, that that gave authority to this new executive, and that made people willing to trust the new executive uh, with all those powers that it was granted. Yeah, well, John Diggins says that basically, you know, you you almost you're almost tempted to believe in some idea of like you know God favoring the United States because they've been so unbelievably lucky with leaders on numerous occasions where they just happen to get a Washington at the right time or a Lincoln at the right time or a Roosevelt at the right time when they could have you know it didn't need to go that way they could have got the kind of leaders that. Germany has got, <laughs> France has got, that were a disaster. You know, and they've just been very lucky in that respect. Another thing you talk about, which I was wanted to get you to expand upon, is the contrast between Washington's personal and political attitudes towards slavery and Jefferson's um, sort of personal and political. Right? So, what? How did they differ on the subject of slavery? Those two. Um. It's an interesting contrast. I think both of them are, are slave owners. Um, both of them have hundreds of slaves uh, under their control, at least, if not um, direct ownership. And um, uh, but they have they have quite different styles of slaveholding and quite different um, attitudes towards race. And so far as we can understand those, um, so so Washington uh, uh, Washington was a uh, a demanding slave owner, um, but his his views seem to have changed over over the course of his life. I mean, in his early years. Uh, he, he he seems to have understood slavery as part of just the natural order of things, um, and it was a largely un, unproblematic institution. So he writes very casually about sending um, a, a slave to the Caribbean to be traded for barrels of, of I forget what, rum or something like that. Um, and, um, you know, for him, it's just sort of one good for another. I mean, he doesn't express any kind of sensitivity or remorse about that or, or any trace of guilt. Um, and that was, you know, that was a way many slaveholders talked about uh, about slavery in in the middle of the 18th century. During the course of the revolution, he uh, he began to rethink his views on slavery, whether that was out of a sense of morality or out of a sense of sort of public perception that this looks bad. Want to be a little more consistent? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, many Europeans were observing, um, not just Europeans, many slaves in the United States and, and blacks in the United States were observing um, and making claims uh, about the hypocrisy of these slave owners who are crying out for liberty. Mm-hmm. Um, that famous line, yeah, right. famous line, yeah. yeah. And, and so, and and you know, these these Americans like Washington are very sensitive to uh, to how Europeans perceive them, to how liberal Europeans perceive them. I mean, they understand themselves as living in the kind of backwater of European empires, um, of European civilization, and they're very keen to establish themselves and make themselves understood as 
as not just civilized, but in fact at the kind of cutting edge of, of worldwide uh, sort of liberty, movement for liberty. So, so slaveholding becomes a real embarrassment for them. Um, so, you know, whether we, or, but it's certainly possible. I mean, there are many people who genuinely do begin to rethink the morality of slavery as a kind of, as a real problem and as a real concern and, and um, in, you know, in line with intellectual and religious and other kinds of pressure. So there are all kinds of reasons for Washington to begin changing his views about the, the um, propriety of being a slave owner. But this happens gradually. I mean, Washington is a very conservative person, I think, temperamentally. Uh, so, so he, he began um, over time to express greater reluctance about, first about selling slaves, and he swears uh, at one point during or slightly after the revolution that he'll never again um, sell a slave. But this creates a problem uh, for him because uh, as he begins shifting his um, his uh, farms out of tobacco and into wheat, he's one of the earliest to see that tobacco has a, um, a limited future uh, in in the Chesapeake region, and that and that wheat is the is the wave of the of the future. So he begins. Uh, shifting to- towards wheat, but wheat demands far less labor than tobacco mm-hmm. does. So, so he um, ends up with a real surplus of labor, um, which he begins wrestling with what to do. So there, are, there are practical problems for him too. He's sworn not to sell slaves, which is the most obvious solution, which most people would do. Um, but he, so he now has hundreds of slaves who are who are not put to work in the way that 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 he thinks they should be. So, um, so he begins searching for answers. Um, and this this is you know ultimately and also it's very significant that he doesn't have any heirs himself his his wife does but she um and and she owns uh most uh, i think a greater number of slaves on on the washington's plantations than he does because they they were inherited from her former husband so so washington doesn't have any heirs to worry about so when he does um when he dies he has this will which uh which proclaims freedom for the slaves under his control so his life ends with a with a pronouncement of abolition. It's a very complicated one, and we can go into the details if you want. But nonetheless, it's a it's a statement. It's an important statement, a very public statement that this is how he sees the future of the republic in some in some sense that that abolition needs to be part of that future. Um, Jefferson, by contrast, doesn't <laughs> do that. Um, I mean, and there's there's different logistical and practical reasons that he doesn't. I mean, his his ex- very extensive writings on slavery are fraught with with um, contradiction and tension with Washington. It's it's tempting to see this very co- sort of linear progression towards um, towards a kind of, you know, eventual understanding that abolition is the is the future. Um, I mean, I think it's more complicated than that, actually. But but with with um, with Jefferson, there's no linear progression. I mean, there's back and forth, back and forth. Some of his some of his most radical pronouncements happen in early in the 1780s in the context of his um, conversations in France and Paris. But those are also some of his most racist pronouncements. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I remember Gore Vidal once said about Jefferson. He said, uh, "If you want to understand what what America is all about, uh, don't look for don't look at Washington or Lincoln or any. Look at Jefferson." This guy who talks an incredibly good game and is very idealistic in his rhetoric, but in his personal life, uh, you know, complete hypocrite, <laughs> like does not, you know, live up to any of this stuff, you know, whereas, but anyway. Yeah, no, I mean, he's, he's a mess, you know, he goes all over the place. He says one thing and then the other and then the other and, you know, um, and who knows what he really thinks or believes it's, it's, you know, that's a kind of, I think, impossible question. I mean, you can just lost in the kind of rabbit hole of the Jefferson's mind, um, and, you know, of course, all of this has been made even more flagrant in recent years with the kind of widely now recognized acceptance of the fact that Jefferson was um, had a long term affair or liaison or however one wants to frame that uh, with uh, with Sally Hemings um, and that he was the father of of uh, of enslaved children. Um, 
whom he individually who individually ended up being freed but but very quietly and then when when he died again you know the the context is different uh he's uh, his plantation is he's greatly indebted but Mm -hmm. nevertheless um members of his children's family are are sold off to pay off his debts um and so it's you know it's it's a much more uh painful story it's a it's i mean if one one so you know if you take one of each of them as kind of metaphors for the for the nation washington's is a much more comforting uh, <laughs> metaphor right we have we have this gradual movement towards abolition and we know you know we, we know which direction is moving towards jefferson's is a is a much more fraught and and painful one um when it comes to their racial views washington um d- doesn't seem to have had as much overt racism as jefferson um did he he didn't seem to have much trouble accepting that slaves could fight in the well he was opposed to it at first but not i i don't think maybe it was on racist grounds but i don't but i think the idea of slaves fighting in the army of black people fighting in the army wasn't one that he saw as as, as paradoxical or impossible um he was a, a very exacting and demanding um uh con, you know owner of slaves he demanded a great deal of them in the ways that that you know maybe that comes from his role as general um uh but but he also didn't seem to have great agony or, or um, you know, fears about the Haitian Revolution. He talked about it quite matter-of-factly, and I suspect that the idea of of slaves rebelling and fighting for their freedom wasn't one that he found shocking or, or strange. Um, and he doesn't seem to have spent a lot of time having bad dreams about it. Jefferson, on the <laughs> other hand, clearly did. I mean, he said he did. Oh, yeah. He talked about the, you know, the cannibals of the terrible republic and all these kinds of things. He's um, in, in very, very racist language. And, and for him, um, it was a much more complicated problem in a sense, you know, that, that, that slaves could fight for their freedom. And he, in fact, he couldn't really think about it in those terms. For him, this was just a kind of barbaric outpouring of violence, a kind of senseless madness and, and violence um, and, um, and not, a, not a political act. And Jefferson seems to have spent nights you know in terror <laughs> at this prospect and and in terror that's that his own slaves would rise up and that american slaves would rise up um so so they have very different um they have very different ways of understanding slavery of understanding race um, jefferson makes many more sort of flagrantly flagrantly racist statements um which again makes his long-term affair with sally hemmings harder to understand in a sense right yeah i i don't i i really don't get it but another question i want to ask you is how do how do you see their their views differing on the question of kind of the indigenous people of the Americas, like in sort of Indians or natives, however you want to describe it? Because they also seem to have very different views of them. And what do you think is going on there? Uh, well, Washington grew up as a as a surveyor, um, and he he had more contact, I think, with um, with Native Americans oh, lots, uh, yeah. in his childhood, and actually as general as well. I mean, as as first as colonel, and then later as general, um, he was fairly adept in the in the norms of Native American diplomacy. Um, if not adept, he was at least conversant, conversant with those uh, norms. I mean, Jefferson, Jefferson, I think, had l- less direct contact. He understood, um, he was interested in uh, Native American society more almost as a scientific, um, like a kind of, anthrop- you know, early anthropological kind of interest, I guess. Um, I mean, certainly he practiced Native American diplomacy when he was uh, Secretary of State and President. But nonetheless, um, I think it had a different valence for him. Uh, and he, um, you know, he, he had this kind of conception of Native American society as something that was, he had a more romantic kind of Rousseauian conception of, of Native Americans as this kind of noble race of noble savages who, um, who were destined to disappear in the kind of 
progress of of civilization. It's a kind of it's a kind of soft racism if you want to think about mm-hmm. it that way in that um, in that sense. There's something there's something uh, at once generous about it, but at once uh, so passive that it, there's a kind of willing acceptance of um, of expropriation and genocide, um, just as a kind of natural order of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas Washington, um, I don't know that he thought as deeply about the future of Native American societies. Um, he probably wouldn't have differed on on you know some conception of their ultimate fate. I think that he I, I've seen less a kind of, of a kind of romantic expression of uh, regret over the disappearance of the noble savage in his writings. Although you know one would want to look a little more carefully perhaps than I have. Yeah, because I've never um, seen any. I mean, maybe maybe it's there, but I've never seen any implication of like him being into the idea of manifest destiny or anything like that. That seems very much. And Jefferson very much has this idea. You know, we. We have to move across the continent, and uh, these people are in our way, so they can either assimilate or or die. Basically, that's yeah. I mean, you know, there's a there's a one of the interesting things I think about about this period is that <clears throat> the politics are more complicated. The good guys are good on some issues, um, and the bad guys are bad on some issues. But the bad guys are sometimes good on <laughs> other issues, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, <laughs> so I don't know what uh, I mean. The bad guy, good guy thing doesn't. You know, you, one's politics today don't map out very well in one's politics in the past so yeah i mean even just even if you go back a hundred years from from the present day i mean most people who we would consider to be right thinking left left wing types right progressive types they were big proponents of eugenics and all sorts of you know crazy things. exactly exactly and that's the case that's the case in the early republic so you know jefferson who is the the really great spokesman of democracy isn't he i mean and we have his quotes uh all over the place you know i mean and he leaves great quotes doesn't he he and he writes really beautifully and and Mm -hmm. deeply about about um about innate rights about about equality all kinds of things um but he is also much more racist than Washington, for instance, or uh, Hamilton, you know, who's become our, our hero. But but um, in the early, you know, 1790s, I mean, in the in the 1790s and early 1800s, this isn't much of a paradox. If you are for equality for whites, you probably are more more racist because because one of the things that whites are fighting for is the right to be slave owners or the right to take Native American land. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's con- continual conflict on the frontier between um, poor whites who've pushed out and often squatted on lands, on public lands, or on Native American lands, uh, without any title to that, without any right to that, in violation of treaties between the United States and and um, Native peoples. Um, and so, how does the government respond to that, or how do how do elites in the East respond to that? Well, Republicans tend to be more sympathetic towards the rights of squatters and settlers than Federalists are. Federalists are often quite. Um, a, Precisely because they have a greater sense of hierarchy and a greater elitism, they are they're much more likely to view those whites who are on the frontier as savages themselves, um, as criminals, as bandits. And Washington has many uh, quotations to that effect, and that's the way that Hamilton sees it, John Jay sees it. You know the, these kinds of Federalists, because precisely because they're much con- much more contemptuous of poor people in general, they're contemptuous of poor whites and less sympathetic towards their claims. Uh, whereas Jefferson, who's more sympathetic towards poor whites, um, is less sympathetic towards Native American claims. So, so what what that means in effect is that is that the more elitist you are in, in the early republic, <laughs> the more the you know maybe the less racist you are. I mean, I know there's not a direct correlation, but it often it often maps out that way. Um, and the more sympathetic you are to Native American land claims, um, and so so people who we like for their democracy, we dislike for their racism. Yeah. Um, and and vice versa, people who we dislike for their elitism, we like for their anti-racism or their early, at least you know, 
reluctance to, you know, their, their, their principled stands on, on uh, abolition. And so, you know, Hamilton today has become really this, this great hero. But, but we do that by, we make him into this hero by forgetting his deep elitism and his deep preference for rigging the economic game in favor of rich people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, maybe he's a, maybe he's a, he's a um, you know, he's a kind of like uh, ideal representative of the kind of multicultural neoliberalism we have, right? Of Obama's America, let's say. <laughs> or perhaps a cautionary tale about trying to, turn history into a morality tale i don't know yes i, I mean that's right that's okay now one of the i assigned a couple chapters of of your book uh, when the united states spoke french to one class and i was surprised by how horrified some of the students were by um, that whole episode with the bloodhounds i mean, very very i mean i have a lot of caribbean students in my class classes and they were they had never heard about this and in fact i have heard about it before in passing uh, a few times in various books and stuff like that, but I've never heard it described in quite um, the detail that that you go into. I mean, actually, that, that book I mentioned before, Charles Mann's book, um, 1493, he talks about that incident as well, and he he talks about how it, it went wrong for various reasons because, you know, the bloodhounds were not effectively uh, very racist. They, <laughs> they So they started eating, like, white people and stuff like that as well. Uh, but can you sort of just describe how something that horrific, I mean, it's one of the really deeply, it's it's disgusting and disturbing that it happened, but it's also uh, what one thing you point out, which nobody else has pointed out to the best of my knowledge, is that there was a huge appetite to hear all the gory details about this on the part of the public, right? This was newspapers, just you couldn't, they couldn't get enough of it, right? So can you just sort of describe what happened and what... Um, I mean, so this is all in the context of the, of the Haitian Revolution, the late stages of the Haitian Revolution, and um, in Napoleon's uh, decision, which we've which we've talked about, to, to try to reconquer the island um, and uh, put the former slaves back into slavery and take direct control over the um, over the French colony. And um, I mean, the the Haitian Revolution has, you know, part of the difficulty of so so. It's a very complicated event in and of itself, um, or series of events, or however you want to talk about it. Um, and it has very high levels of violence. Now, every revolution has violence, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and uh, and so how do we talk about violence? Um, and it's a very complicated historical issue when you're thinking about this. Um, it's, a, it's a moral issue, really, because um, it has deep implications. If we talk about the American Revolution... Uh, by minimizing the level of violence that happens in the American Revolution, we understand it as this sort of reasoned, enlightened movement towards liberty. Um, and that emphasizes, that reinforces all the kind of claims that we want to make, that, that many people want to make about the United States. And, and, um, and it's, it's the, the justice with which those claims are founded, in which those claims are founded, and, and, and the justice of the, of the ultimate outcome um, and the legitimacy of the American Republic. Um, if you emphasize violence more, it makes it uh, it makes it seem more barbaric, right? So, so there's a greater there probably are. I mean, you know, if you measure the actual levels of of dead people, um, there are more dead people in the uh, French Revolution than there are in the American Revolution, particularly if you count the Napoleonic Wars. In mm-hmm. fact, in fact, those largely um, 
by, by massively outweigh the number of, de- of mm-hmm. corpses um, in North America. So, so you know, and that becomes part of the way we understand. Uh, you know, the, uh, there's a kind of narrative of violence in the French Revolution, which is used to discredit the Jacobins in particular. Right? These are the people who go around executing their enemies, um, which is partly true, but also it's a way of of undermining the the claims that they're the political claims that they're making. And this is even more true in the Haitian Revolution, where um, where many people really emphasize the violence, um, and it is an unbelievably violent event. Um, but dwelling on the violence and dwelling on the on the uh, goriness of it and on the savagery of the violence, let's use that term, um, is a way of discrediting the Haitian Revolution as something that's very different from the American Revolution, right? The Haitian Revolution is this just, just this outburst of frenzied violence, senseless. It, it's not reasoned. And for there, therefore, it doesn't make the same claims to. It doesn't make the same political claims. It doesn't have the same political valence. Um, and in fact, it can be used as a um, an example of why it's dangerous to begin extending rights or to begin talking about uh, rights for Black people or equality for Black people. Because here's where it ends up. It ends up in this outburst of savage violence. And so, so emphasizing the violence of the Haitian Revolution becomes a way of discrediting the movement itself and of discrediting racial equality and discrediting um, independent states for for uh, for black people. So so that's part of the reason that this is such a fraught topic, I think. Um, and it's part of the reason that that, you know, that it's very, you know, it's it's difficult to talk about these things in ways that don't have immediate political implications and that make people, you know, uncomfortable to talk about. Um, all that said, the the there was a uh, there was a shocking amount of violence in um, in the Haitian Revolution, and it's a um, you know it's a it's a depressing and painful thing to look at. And part of the reason it's so violent is that is precisely because whites um, are able to see uh, black people as subhuman, um, and so they have fewer compunctions about murdering them um, than they do about uh, about white people. So I just it, I kept thinking, and I you know I wrote this in my my copy of your book. I kept writing in the you know, on the margins, I said like, you know, what if scenarios, right? I thought if the, if somehow the, the British were mobilizing a whole bunch of bloodhounds and get going to use them as, as a tool to fight against the, the revolutionaries in the American revolution. I, I imagine that if they were doing something like that, that would have massively turned the people of, of Britain against the government and for for the revolutionaries it would have had it it would have been massively terrible pr right for them right uh, likewise if you think about it in like the spanish con- context like if they were organizing uh, to put together a couple hundred like bloodhounds to help them in the sort of the conquest of mexico or something like that like that that's the kind of thing that would have massively turned spanish public opinion against against the crown and things like that there i mean they did do a well, lot did. of i mean yeah they did know, a lot of violent stuff yeah. but this is the kind yeah, of things that went back that was used to discredit uh spanish imperialism in the americas yeah. I mean, so those, why those is it this, exactly. this is what's interesting to me that you have this uh, this thing that happens and rather than discrediting the people that are doing it it's something that sells a lot of newspapers and it's quite popular yeah, well, I mean, I think it it does discredit the the, the French um, side, you know, in the eyes of many people. Um, I mean, I think that's uh, part of the reason. I mean, certainly within within you know, I mean, there's a long tradition within Haitian historiography of writing about this very clearly, um, and so you know, th- there's no doubt that that in, in from a Haitian perspective, this discredits the, the the legitimacy of the French. I mean, without a doubt, uh, for 
for American audiences, for Anglo-American audiences, it's a little more complicated, right? Because on the one hand, the French are the enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's some appetite for seeing stories of French uh, savagery um, in Saint-Domingue. But on the other hand, um, on the other hand, you know, uh, very few white people, there are some, but very few who are willing to uh, see the legitimacy of the uh, of the Haitian um, movement. So, so uh, both sides, it, it it kind of accomplishes both ends among Anglo Americans. Uh, I think that is to say, it highlights the savagery of the French and Napoleon, um, but it also highlights the savagery of of uh, former enslaved people who are fighting for their freedom. Um, it makes them out to be not fighting for freedom, but but just you know, as I was saying, you know, there's this frenzied outburst of violence. So dwelling on the violence, well, I mean, on the other, you know, and, and the final thing is there is a kind of there's always a kind of sort of pornographic appetite for you know for these stories of violence. I mean, we still have this today. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, you know, half the movies that we that it go, come out are just you know have plenty of violence in them, right? Because people on some level like to see violence. But that's a very simplistic claim. So, but you know, um, in the political context of the 1790s and early 1800s, um, it, it you know emphasizing the kind of the 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 savagery of both sides the savagery of this war can can discredit both the french and the haitians um thus you know serving american ends very very well um and british ends very well um so so i think you know it fits well in in this kind of storyline um and you can look back on the haitian revolution um and it becomes you know as i say like later it becomes really easy to discredit the whole thing this was just this was so violent um that that uh, this should never again be attempted, and you know, and and uh, uh, pro-slavery, you know, people who want to justify the legitimacy of slavery will often, and and who are anti-abolitionist will often point to Saint-Domingue as the example of what happens when you start extending rights to Black people. It will end in this total um, morass of violence. So so and 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 bloodshed, and you know. And that's why you shouldn't do these things. This um, is why you've got the wolf by the ears, right? You have to like. Yeah, and this yeah. is why it's very dangerous to start talking about abolition, um, and it's very dangerous to start putting um, protections on, on, you know, like uh, passing laws, say, you know, against, you know, protecting slaves in whatever way, or um, or talking about the ending of the slave trade or the the beginning of some movement towards gradual abolition. I mean, all these things are dangerous um, for for people who are opposed to abolition. Um, and so the so the Haitian Revolution can be used. I mean, it's one of these things. It can be used as as the example for people who are um, anti-abolition, and then it's of course used by people who are pro-abolition, right? As a great symbol of of um, of the justice of of the abolitionist cause, right? Of the, of the humanity of Black people. So so it, it serves both purposes in different hands, um, and and it becomes you know a very powerful symbol in every respect. Well, it's sort of the inevitable question in 2018. As as an American historian, uh, how do you make sense of the Trump. I mean, how did the Donald, like, how do you sort of make sense of, of what's going on in the United States right now? I mean, you have this sort of long perspective, right? Deep knowledge of the, the Republic. How did, how did it get to this point? I mean, do you think the founding fathers anticipated a Donald Trump or do you think they prepared adequately for somebody like this or you know, what do you think? I mean, uh, okay. So, so yes and no. I mean, uh, they certainly couldn't have predicted a, a Donald Trump, right? Like a person who comes out of reality television, uh, <laughs> the, you know, the sort of culture of celebrity. Um, this is very, this is nothing that anybody would have imagined in the 1780s. But on the other hand, the idea of a, of, of a, you know, sort of despot coming up of somebody with, you know, very authoritarian instincts um, and a willingness to run roughshod over law um, and, you know, uh, the judiciary, other branches of government. I mean, all these things are very much what 
the framers of the Constitution had in mind when they put in place this whole system of, of checks and balances. Um, so, so yes and no. I mean, people, you know, a big part of the Constitution is to try to prevent the rise of a, of a Donald Trump. Now, mm-hmm. of course, everything depends on what your perspective of Donald Trump is, right? Yeah. <laughs> but from my perspective, um, uh, there's an awful lot of attempts to try to discredit this. And in many ways, this is a kind of test of our constitutional system, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, it completely failed um, in terms of his election. I mean, the purpose of the, elector- of the Electoral College, as it was set up, it was meant to be this sort of Congress of wise um, and virtuous men who would gather together to, to make sure that the people who couldn't really be trusted um, didn't elect a, uh, a despot. Um, and they would be able to to elect um, somebody with uh, sort of um, greater wisdom and and virtue. Uh, the electoral college has been sort of mangled over the years, but um, but clearly it didn't serve that purpose. In fact, it served the exact opposite purpose. It's thanks to the electoral college and the ways in which it calculates votes that we ended up with Donald Trump. So so that failed um, on the terms of the founders. Um, and, you know, there's an awful lot of things that they put in place that have been withered away. I mean, you know, I often am sort of amused by the, um, you know, by claims to sort of originalism uh, on among people um, with those who make those arguments, because particularly when it comes to a very literal reading of the of the Second Amendment. I mean, I think there's all kinds of reasons for thinking that uh that you know the the people who wrote the constitution didn't have assault weapons in mind when they were thinking about um <laughs> when they were thinking about the second amendment the right to bear arms but you know today if you're very literal you say well that's a that's a constitutional protection fine but you know what the constitution also says is that um only congress can declare war uh so why do we not have as literal a reading of that clause as we do of the second amendment um and today it's taken virtually for granted that the president can as as he recently did in Syria, and as Obama ha- did before him on many occasions, oh, as yeah. George Bush did, as uh, every president basically since Roosevelt has done, can um, can go to war without Congress's um, without a vote for war. Now, you know, people say, well, there's a War Powers Act and there's authorization to use violence, but none of these is a declaration of war. So, if you are a very literal, you know, an originalist reading the Constitution, why don't you find that? So, there's all kinds of ways in which. The Constitution was set up. You know, the the executive power today is is vastly greater than it was in. You referred to Gore Vidal. I mean, he was somebody who made this argument over and over again, right? Yeah. Um, executive power is so much greater than it was under the Constitution. I mean, un, uh, for than it was envisioned by the the people who wrote the Constitution, um, and that seems to to bother relatively few people, um, I- including and in particular, it doesn't seem to bother whatsoever those who who have a very literalist reading of the Constitution, originalist reading of the Constitution. So, um, so you know, from my perspective as somebody who dwells in the uh, late 18th and early 19th century, um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, transformation at work, a lot of danger at work. And, and on the other hand, um, you know, you can take an opposite perspective and say, you know, this is a kind of test of the Constitution. I mean, there are many checks and balances. And in fact, Donald Trump has been um, repeatedly thwarted by these checks and balances. You know, he, he had the his original... Um, sort of ban on immigration of people from certain countries was blocked immediately um, and then has been repeatedly been blocked. And many of the things that Trump has tried to put in place have been blocked by judges um, and his attempts to, you know, make the FBI into his kind of personal police force uh, have really quite backfired on him. Haven't they? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's got now he's got the opposite sort of happening um, where the FBI is investigating him in all kinds of ways. <laughs> so um, and in many ways, you know, that that. Um, 
reflects the strength of the kind of constitutional system, doesn't it? It's but you know, in interesting ways, what people talk about all the time um, today is the kind of norms, right? Now, norms aren't part of the constitution. I mean, that wasn't mm. in fact part of the reason it was written the way it was was because the the framers didn't have uh, very much confidence in norms, did they? They 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 thought that we needed very sort of a mechanized system of checks and balances to to prevent these kinds of things from happening. So, and today we have. The mechanics are less strong, as I was saying earlier, and and the, the faith in the norms is stronger. And you know, and maybe this will be ultimately to the to the good in the sense that maybe we'll stop thinking, okay, we just need to have norms so we can we can allow the president to, to the power to just go to war whenever he pleases or she, um, and we'll just trust in the norms that have traditionally uh, refrained, you know, prevented uh, people from going taking that too far. Well, you know, maybe we should stop doing that. Um, and maybe Trump is a good reason why we should stop doing that. Maybe we'll start putting in place some greater uh, legal legal mechanisms to 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 restrain executive power. Which, from my perspective, this is a political statement, not a historical one. But from yeah, my it's, perspective, it's interesting. It would be the argument good. you're making is very similar to David Frum, you know, of Axis of Evil fame. Uh, David Frum's new book, Trumpocracy. You know, there's this emerging sort of genre. I I call it sort of anti-Trump lit, right? But uh, his his contribution to anti-Trump lit uh, was Trumpocracy, right? And the last, uh, and he, he's of course one of the first never Trumpers in uh, the Republican Party. Yeah, Canadian guy originally, um, and he's you know he's been very very consistent in his criticism of Trump from the beginning. Uh, and in the last chapter of his book of Trumpocracy, he says a lot of the same things you just said. He said, you know, actually. There's a lot of good things that may come of this. And he says, you know, it, it may force us to realize that we've been looking the other way while the executive branch has been arrogating all sorts of authority to itself uh, for decades. And maybe having somebody who so flagrantly makes clear what, what this can lead to will be a good thing. It'll actually cause us to rein this back and put in special... Uh, firewalls, and he he makes a lot of comparisons to Watergate, right? That, I mean, L Nixon was using, as you put it, Nixon was using the FBI as his private sort of police force, as his thugs to do his dirty work for him. Um, and after that, all these various firewalls and were put in place so that that could not happen again. And that's exactly uh, what Trump doesn't seem to realize when he calls up the head of the FBI and says, you know, I want you to kiss the ring and give me loyalty. And he's like, no, I don't think so. Right. It's uh, so, yeah, I no, mean, it, it could be a good thing. It could be. It could be. I, I will say that I would um, I would have more. Um, I'd be more persuaded by voices like Donald, like David Frum's David Frum. Right. Yeah. Um, if if uh, if it wasn't such a recent conversion. Um, I mean, these are the very guys who were making claims to unitary executives under George W. Bush and who were, you know, very happy to go along with the, with uh, executive power to torture um, and all kinds of things mm -hmm. um, and who had very little respect. I mean, let's not forget that George uh, W., you know, fired a whole set of um, of uh, prosecutors and, you know, and, and I mean, there were all there were all kinds of ways in which the George W. Bush administration laid the groundwork for what uh, Donald Trump is doing now. Um, and many of the arguments. And in fact, as we see from Bolton, for instance, many of the same people who cut their teeth, you know, many of the same people who cut their teeth in the Bush administration are back in um, and and advancing the very same claims to executive power. Uh, so that 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 Trump is making. So, you know, I will. Um, 
I'm, I suppose you know I'm happy to to have from as a as an ally, but but I, you know, it's one of the strange things about American politics is that people, people who used who who were wrong in the past, um, when they say things that seem right now, they have more credibility and authority than people who were right in the past. So people who are complaining about Bush's executive power somehow have less of a um, less of a mouthpiece, uh, less of a, you know, uh, what's the megaphone today mm-hmm. than people who are wrong about Bush's exact. I mean, people who were on Bush's side and are now opposed to Trump somehow have more credibility than people who were not on Bush's side and are now opposed to Trump. And that's, that's it's I, a weird, yeah. it's a weird element of American politics. It, it is very weird. And the, the similarity of personnel is, is, is fascinating. That's one of the reasons why I actually think Comey's uh, new book, which I just came out, I read it last week i right away i was you like read a fever, lot. feverishly reading through it but his book is fascinating for exactly that reason because he ha- is somebody who's had a lot of uh, conflictual interactions with different administrations so That's he true. had he had uh run-ins with the obama administration with the bush he was actually at the forefront of fighting them on the torture issue. Yeah, there and was that he, famous bedside scene, right, in the hospital when Ashcroft was... Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's... I mean, that, that's, that's what made him head of the FBI, isn't it? Yeah, that was very, very... That was very, very shocking. But but also, uh, there's a couple other scenes in his book where he's sitting there with Dick Cheney, and Dick Cheney, like, looks him right in the eyes and says, you know, thousands of people are going to die because of you, because of what you're doing right now. Because he was saying you need to stop this torture thing like right away i'm not going to go along with this this is like uh so he it's interesting reading from his perspective because i people are kind of angry at him on all sides and i understand why like he he kind of deserves it but he has been consistent he he's again and again in his career he's been this sort of uh you know uptight like boy scout who is just going to do what he thinks is right, regardless of, you know, he's going to prosecute Martha Stewart, even though everybody is going to hate him for doing it, because he said, you know, why should she get a pass just because she's famous and wealthy? And why should, and he's, you know, he's done this again and again and again. So uh, he kind of has, I think Trump has kind of met his match with this guy, you know, because this guy is just, you know, not, he's willing to like burn down the whole house, like for what he thinks is right, you know, and, yeah, he has he has a uh, great faith in his righteousness, doesn't he? Yeah, he's, <laughs> I think like, it's annoying. It's like he he reminds me of exactly you know Aristotle says, virtue taken too far becomes vice. I mean he he just reeks of virtue taken too far. The, I, the one thing I'll say about when it comes to torture too, though, I just I mean if we're gonna get on the, you know the political uh, line of of conversation, um, is that you know I think um, we we shouldn't let Obama off the hook either. Um, when Obama came into office, you know, this was this was in my mind one of the great moral issues at stake in the election uh, of 2008 was how do we what kind of um, what are we going to uh, what kind of referendum are we going to make on this question of should the United States torture when it's uh, when it's at uh, war, or at least in the name of war. Um, and Obama, uh, one of the reasons he beat Hillary in that um, in the primary was that he was very clear that torture was wrong. I mean, he never right. Uh, going to close Guantanamo. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then when he came to office, he immediately um, changed his tune and said, we, we can't look back. Uh, we have to look forward. Um, and, you know, never mind. I mean, in my ideal world, I, uh, we would have done investigations and prosecution of people who broken the law. Um, and everybody from the from the person who actually did the uh, torture to the people who uh, 
authorized it all the way up to the office of the president in the White House or the vice president or wherever it was coming from, uh, would have been put on trial and, and uh, convicted if they had broken the law. Now, I realize that's uh, politically a little unrealistic. Um, but at the very least, you know, there could have been a greater transparency. There could have been some truth commission that went, you know, and the reports, I mean, the Senate did this, I don't know, huge investigation. And then it was all uh, kept very hush-hush. Very few pieces of it were were released. So there was never a really public reckoning with what the United States had done during the Bush administration. Um, and in the name of looking forward, we never, we never did that. I mean, and Obama chose not to do that. And um, I think today that can be seen as a huge mistake in the sense that um, all these people are back in, you know, and we're about, I mean, he's appointed and Senate will probably confirm this person who was one of the people leading the charge, you know, who should, if not have been convicted uh, at the very least, uh, no, the woman, uh, I forgot her name. Gina Haspel. Is Is that her name? Yeah. Haspel. Um, And uh, uh, at the very least, she should have been, you know, testifying publicly in front of Congress and a truth commission. You know, I mean, she should have been drummed out of the, of, of that profession. Um, and instead, she's going to be leading it. Uh, so, you know, so this is what happens when you don't reckon <laughs> with the past, right? I mean, this mm-hmm. is easy for a historian to say, but, but you know, you end up, um, you end up with with people who continue these these policies. So again, you know, to go back to David Frum, sorry, uh, <laughs> Yo, I mean, it, it's hard for you to take his word out, yeah. But, but you know, I mean, as you point out in your book, right? The sometimes people start off in one place and end up in a very very different place. And Frum actually does. Uh, he does express regret for some of the things that he did and said, and he, he's he's not uh, he's definitely not sort of unapologetic about you know what happened. I think he he definitely sees uh, that to some extent he had a hand in creating the problems that we're dealing with right now. Yeah, and well that's good, and he's Canadian, yeah. and he's Canadian. <laughs> well, the, the last question I want to ask you, and we'll close with that, uh, is what are you working on right now? What are the what is the next book? What is the what are you excited about right now? So besides uh, your two little girls, <laughs> you're, how old are they again? Uh, seven months and two years and and three months, I think. Wow! So you're yeah. busy. Okay. Yes. Well, when you're so not working running on them, after kids, mostly uh, um, changing diapers, changing diapers, yeah. getting up at night. Yeah. Uh, so I have a couple of sort of projects I'm working on. I mean, one the most immediate one that I'm working on right now, which I need to get done this summer, is I've signed on to a textbook team. So. Um, I've I've joined a, um, a existing text, but one of the authors retired, and so I'm replacing her on on her chapters on um, leading up to the American Revolution through up to Jackson, basically. Um, and uh, we're working on the eighth edition of this textbook, and it's been it's actually been tremendously fun to to work on this so far. Because Which one? It's called the American Promise. Oh yeah, okay. I don't know if you remember, but when we were in grad school, I one of the ways I made money was I was hired by this company. And I reviewed all of the like top twenty American history textbooks on the market. It paid really, really well. It was like, but I would read the whole textbook and then review them. And that one was one of the was one of the best. I, I can't remember if I gave it. I think it was like my number two or three in the in the rankings. But but I think the way you write is exactly what is needed for American history. Like something that's very vivid, very kind of grabs the student and gets them. Uh, interested without losing kind of the thread of the analysis. So I guess yeah, you're well, writing the early Republican chapters. Yeah, or? writing from uh, from the seven years. It starts the the first chapter I'm taking is the Seven Years' War and the aftermath, and then going all the way to um, Jackson, basically. And I think once the age of Jackson begins, it moves on to someone else's. Wow. Okay. So, um, and that's exciting. That's it's fun. fun. It's yeah. been really fun. And you know, it for it. Um, 
it's interesting that you say that about writing because the writing style is one that I've been thinking about, you know, and it's particularly one because I'm inheriting someone else's chapters and these are great chapters. I mean, it's a great textbook, as you say. Yeah. It's a really terrific, very, very good. Um, and so how do you make something that's really good? Uh, how do you avoid revising it to make it worse, <laughs> which is obviously <laughs> a danger. Um, and so I've been trying to put a little bit more of my own voice in there. Um, and But one of the things that makes this a really great textbook is that it, it has a lot of life in it. It has a lot of characters in it and there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of voices from people in the past. I mean, that's how they that's how they sort of understand themselves within this big, you know, competitive textbook market. Um, and uh, and so so, yeah, trying to strike some balance between having an individual voice and also being able to take a very synthetic, you know, sort of um, perspective from the stratosphere on, on American history. You want to be able to talk about you want to be comprehensive without giving up some kind of narrative line without giving without losing entirely the agency of individual people and it's very it's it's a big challenge um and it's fun to sort of work on and think about actually yeah how do you deal with cause one of the i mean it's going back like 20 years here but i remember that one of the things that i identified when i was doing this this whole review was that the single author works like the the textbooks the the single author textbooks even though they would have, you know, all sorts of various defaults, which were usually a function of the fact that the historian in question was just, you know, not very strong on, on this issue or this issue. But the defects I found were uh, almost always vastly uh, sort of outweighed by the benefits of having a single voice, which is just, it's very powerful for a student reading it. And I, I found that the multi-author works um, even when they were very, very well done, it was incredibly jarring to be reading and it's like one voice and then boom, it's a completely different voice. And it's, it, you know, it often like kills the flow. So how do you deal with that in the American Promise, like trying to smooth that out? Yeah. Or do you just not deal with it? Well, no, it's a really good question. Um, the single author, so the best-selling textbook in the market right now is Eric Foner's, um, yeah. Give Me Liberty, I think it's called. And, um, and it comes out of his now actually having like, I don't know whether, so he wrote this book called the story of American freedom. <laughs> I remember. Yeah. I, I don't know whether the textbook, whether that book came out of the textbook or whether the textbook came out of that book. I well, mean, no, I, I know the textbook the, came out of the book, uh-huh. but, uh, because I remember I talked to him about this, like, um, the textbook came out of the book. Uh, but, and the idea was to basically expand the book into a textbook, but when he started doing it, he realized it wasn't going to work. And so he scrapped the book and just started from scratch and wrote the textbook. Right. He just, I see. He didn't really turn it into, but, but he, but the plan was originally, was original. So whether he wrote that story of American freedom with the textbook in the back of his mind or not, I don't know. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. Anyway, but, uh, the, the single author book, um, clearly has its appeal right because this is the one that's the best selling yep. and it is you have a perspective you have a stronger sort of narrative through line um in the book you know and and you're allowed you know he he makes it possible to hitch a lot of things around this this you know sort of expansion of and there's there's a real there's a real n- narrative line as i say in there it's not just because there's a common theme but also because you know you can see moments where freedom expands and you can see it you know there's setbacks and you can see it moving forward and um and uh, so that's its its real strength, I think, um, as well as its vivid writing. Um, vivid? I don't know. I don't. I don't. You don't, I don't find don't, it? I, I I like. I think it's a it's a great textbook, um, but I don't think uh, nobody's ever accused Eric Foner of being a great writer. <laughs> really? <laughs> so, I don't get writer. He's I think a, I think he's uh, he has he's a very good thinker, and he thinks in a sort of logical and organized way, and he has 
I mean, he's a, he's a great historian. I just don't think he's a... Fa I, but actually, I think that only further reinforces the point I'm making. Like, even though he's not the best writer in the world, it's the number one textbook because that's how, how, that's how nice it is to have a single voice yeah. telling the story. That even if the voice is not, is off tune and, you know, often it still is really powerful. So I'm, well, it's a huge, it's a huge market. And what's interesting, um, you know, not everybody wants the same things, obviously. Uh, and so, um, so many people find as ma obviously many people find that to be a great attraction to the book. Um, because the students like it, but but some people clearly find that um, are don't want that in the classroom because they want something that's going to be a little more, I don't know if neutral is the right word, but but um, that's going to have a different kind of voice um, or maybe less of a strong voice and um, and something that they can then play off against in the classroom. Many people clearly want that, and so so that's you know, I mean I don't think it's about distinguishing it, but but um, I mean to come back to the the question you were asking at first, how do you manage that? It's um, I don't really know. I mean, I, so I've been thinking about this as I've been working on starting these revisions. And, um, you know, one of the things that I noticed, which is kind of interesting, is that in the we get a whole set of reviews. There's like 30 reviews that come back from, you know, from different people who use the book in their classroom. Some of them who use this book, others who use other books. Um, and they comment on the on the textbook. And, and, um, and they're really incisive reviews, actually. Um, and these are people who are working in really interesting ways in the classroom who are obviously very dedicated to the kinds of things they're doing. Um, but one of the things very... What I didn't see in the reviews, and somebody pointed this out in the meeting that we had, is that um, many of them talked about kind of the, the downsides of writing a textbook by committee. But yeah. there's, there, isn't, there isn't a sense, or at least not expressed, that actually different people are sole authors of the different chapters, right? That actually each chapter has its own sol solo author. It's not actually written by committee. Um, so it's not that we're all working on all the chapters together. But they seem to think that, that that's the case, which suggests on the one hand that they do a pretty good job of integrating the chapters among you know the different authors and it's it's one of the things to think about as I'm revising whether I want to change that too much um, and uh, and also that you know that that somehow there is this kind of or there seems to be if not a voice from nowhere at least a voice that's not in, in you know recognizable as an individualized kind or of those voice reviewers are just not very good readers they're pretty good readers actually <laughs> no they, they are and, and maybe a, maybe they don't comment maybe they just assume clear when you're reading the chapters of a multi-author it's pretty clear that we've changed gears and it's another voice and it's one voice for that chapter well they do a lot of things to try to keep them together right so there's there's always the, the the sort of vivid anecdote that starts out the chapter and then the individual who's used to kind of weave through the chapter um so there, there are certain kind of you know and then there's the, the analyzing viewpoints and you know analyzing primary sources and other kinds of things so so there are things that are done to try to maintain a consistency throughout the book um, and in those, and also the distinction between the voice in those sort of separate features um, and the voice in the actual textbook are they're they're different enough from each other to keep things. So anyway, but yeah, I mean, there are there are pluses and minuses to having a strong voice, and it's definitely something to think about um, mm -hmm. in the in the textbook. I, I remember world. the the top I mean, once again. It's been a while, but I remember the the top grades uh, for uh, extra material like sort of quizzes and. Uh, essay topics and things like that. American Promise was number one on that. I remember it was just unbelievable. Like, and you know, in an environment where, and we can talk about how evil this is, but where a lot of these American History 101 classes are being taught by part timers, by graduate students, by people who are very busy, don't have a lot of time, maybe don't even have enough knowledge to be teaching the class. If you get a textbook like that, it's it's almost like 
a drone. I mean, it's almost like self-guiding class. Like it, it gives you just everything. It just makes sure. I mean, the, the extra materials right. you get as a teacher for the, the, the um, now it sounds like we're doing an ad for the American problems. <laughs> Wait, no, it actually is like a really the, fantastic. The publisher's going to be really happy with this. Yeah. The, the, um, <laughs> that's been actually, and that's the other thing. So I've, I've been learning a lot from this process really. And, um, and working on those kind of pedagogical features, which are in a huge part of the textbook, right? It's not just the narrative. And in certain ways, those are more important than the narrative oh, itself, yeah. because that's I mean, what a lot of people want to be able to have in the classroom. Um, and so thinking about the pedagogy behind this. So, and, and each time, you know, I'm, I'm sort of revising a paragraph or a section, I'm thinking, okay, what are the essential questions that work here? And how, how do you want to develop these kinds of historical, the, the skills of sort of thinking historically, right? So how do you want to pose questions that ask, that force students to think about cause and effect? Um, and that force students to think about um, relationships and about how different people can have different viewpoints on the same event and those have very different meanings. Um, and so all of these things, you know, thinking really hard pedagogically and going, you know, paragraph sentence by sentence through the book and thinking in those ways and through different periods has been really a terrific exercise for me, you know, and hopefully it'll make me a better teacher too. But, but it's true that, that those are, that's a, it's a really important um, way to be thinking. And it also helps you kind of think about what it is that I want to expand and what do I, what do I want to um, remove here? Because, you know, one of the challenges is you have to revise without adding any words. So, um, to the total word count, that is to say, so it's, it's oh, so you inherit these chapters and you don't just like burn them to the ground and no, write, no, no, no. write them fresh. you revise them? Revise them. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, over time, I mean, if I were to stick with this for multiple editions over time, more of the pros would end up being mine. And, you know, it's sort of like the old, I was thinking about, you know, there's the old thing about stone soup. What's that? The, uh, you know, stone soup, the old like Yiddish proverb of like, oh, anyway, it's a, it's a great story where they got, anyway, it, it, things get replaced until it's a completely new thing, right? So Yeah, no, there's this thing. No, I was thinking about, um, you know, the grandfather's axe or whatever it is, you know, like replace the handle three times in the head twice, but it's still my favorite axe. <laughs> <laughs> so are you working on anything else other than the textbook project right now? Um, I have a, uh, I'm co-authoring a little book. I hope it was supposed to be an article at first and it's turned into a little book with Eric Hinderocker, who's um, a historian, of, uh, uh, Native American historian at the University of Utah. And um, he and I are writing on Frederick Jackson Turner. Oh, wow. We both okay. got interested in Turner uh, separately, but we've joined forces to, um, to think about Turner. I mean, I think one of the objectives is to kind of move beyond the frontier thesis, which is what most people sort of associate Turner with, uh, you know, the essay on the significance of the frontier. Mm-hmm. Um, and think about other work that he was doing and think more broadly actually about his sort of historical world um, and the kind of the whole intellectual milieu in which he's, he's uh, uh, working and, um, and kind of try to engage that with historians today. So one of the things I've been working on that I'm the chapter that I'm working on right now is thinking about um, is on what he called uh, physiography, which was, you know, a whole kind of discipline. I mean, it's an early form of geography really um and uh and and he was really interested in geography and really interested in the relations between the natural world and and the uh, uh human society and so um so there's ways in which this can be seen as a kind of early environmental history and so thinking you know thinking harder about ways in which we come out of you know come out of these older um old bodies of scholarship today um and about how we can dialogue with that more interestingly you know make that part of the conversation that we have you know there's a I mean, part of the impulse, I think, is is a general... That actually rings true to me. I had never thought about that before, but Turner does sound often like, you know, guns, germs, and steel, or like he, he sounds like one of those uh, one of those geographers that have these big sweeping theses about like how 
environment. You're almost like Charles Mann, actually, as well. Yeah, well, he's yeah. really interested. I mean, and he knows a lot, actually, about, you know, trees and, and soils and, and, you know, mountain ranges and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's a it's amazing. Um, and he's really, you know, he's interested in this stuff and he thinks deeply about it. And, you know, and in many ways, he was in certain ways, he can be seen as a Native American historian. I mean, it's 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 provocative to say that yeah. um, in other ways, he can be seen as a kind of transnational historian. So all, there's all kinds of ways in which the things that we're interested in today um, were also being practiced in very different ways back then. Um, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not to sort of rehabilitate Turner at all, but but it's to sort of think about how to sort of think with him, if you want to think about that. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, it's it, one of my perpetual um, complaints about historians is that, you know, we're, we're very quick to kind of ex- sort of assert our own superiority relative to the historiography that came before us, you know, so we're always bashing some, <laughs> you know, some past historian in the, in the beginning of a book. I mean, it's, you know, it's a dialectical way of thinking and it's useful, but, but um, at the same time, it's often very wrong, actually. Um, and it's, I think, more productive to, to um, have those people as part of our conversation instead of just kind of bash them, you know, because our ideas don't come out of nowhere. They come out of these old traditions, long traditions of, of, of deep reflection. Well, I'm very glad to have had you as part of this conversation, the Likeful Conversation. So thank you very much for coming today. And I look forward to uh, reading that book when you're done with it. Thanks for having me, John.